welcome everyone to this Friday fireside chat with Paul LeBlanc, president of Southern New Hampshire University. As we are gathering up attendees, a couple of things to remember. Uh, the first thing to remember is this is being recorded, so do not say anything or type anything in the chat that you do not want to be remembered for in all posterity. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, please post questions and things in the chat. Um, and I'll try to keep an eye on that as we go. It's sometimes difficult if you're involved in the conversation to do that, but I will try uh, to do to do that. Um, let me just think. So um, if you're on this webinar, Paul probably needs no uh, introduction. Since 2003, he's been the president of Southern New Hampshire University and is widely regarded as one of the real leaders in uh, what higher education is and will become. <laughs> and a great, a great admirer of Paul's and what he's been able to I achieve. Do. So um, I thought I'd start with a mutual friend, uh, Clay Christensen. And um, that's how we met initially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Clay, in his um, one of his more recent books, um, Competing Against Luck, and I thought to kick off the conversation, I'd start off with um, a passage from from the book, which which I just it, it moves me even today. Uh, standing in front of the graduating class of Southern New Hampshire University in 2015, President Paul LeBlanc decided to go off script. It was the third commencement ceremony that day. The total number of graduating students and families was too large to fit into the auditorium in one sitting, even in the 12,000 seats of the Verizon Wireless Arena. Uh, uh, he, he asked, he turned his focus to those in caps and gowns before him. If you served in the military or are serving in the military and are graduating today, please stand for a moment. About half those in caps and gowns stood. If you are, as I am, the first generation in your family to get an undergraduate degree, stand. Roughly half the crowd got to their feet. If you're getting a degree today and you also have kids, please stand. By then, virtually every member of the graduating class had been on his or her feet. I just think that's such a remarkable testament yeah. to what you've been able to accomplish there. It's just a, a brilliant. So maybe just for those listening who may not know you, um, give us a little overview of, of who is Paul and what's he doing. Well, thank you. Um, and in some ways, you know, I, I've sort of I've been at SNHU now 17 years, and it's a place that really feels like home to me because I am myself an immigrant, first-generation college student. My parents had eighth-grade educations. Um, my mom worked in a factory till she was 76, and um, I think I feel like I've lived a version of the American dream. You know, Larry Bacow, who's a good friend, president of Harvard, and I were talking about this recently. That we both, you know, he he's the son of immigrants. His mother was a Holocaust survivor. Um, his father fled pogroms in, in Europe, and in one generation, the president of Harvard, right? So we both had these amazing journeys and access to high quality, um, higher affordable higher education made that possible. And I still have such a deep conviction that that's the critical piece of social mobility and to make our society better and to make it work better. But of course, it's increasingly out of the financial reach of, of people. So what I love about the institution I serve is that, you know, 135,000 students, we have about 4,000 who live on campus and those are traditional age students and they themselves are often first generation, come from working class families. But the great bulk of our adults um, are, you know, the average age is 29, 86% of them are working, most of them have kids, so just as Clay described in the book. And they're doing this very hard thing, right? They have, the first priority is their family and then their jobs. And now they're gonna squeeze in an education because they need to unlock an opportunity. Most of them are stuck in some way. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and they have to finish that degree that 80% of them started. 
So 80% of them have credits, but no degree. Hmm. And the worst place to be in America right now is among the 40 million people who have some credits, no degree, and a lot of debt. Right. 1.6 trillion debt all total. But so many of them don't have anything to show for it. It's worse than if they never went, honestly. Um, so, so that's who we think of, right? When our, our, the people we serve are the 50% of Americans who say that they would struggle to come up with the $400 for an unexpected car repair or medical expense. And that's what we're built to do. And that's a very jobs to be done mindset. Like, what is it that they need from us that is different than a traditional campus student? And, and you and talk about the difference between the 18 year old job to be done versus those students job to be done. Yeah. So it's, it really, you know, we didn't have jobs to be done language when we started this journey and Clay gave it to us when he and Bob Molesto were really doing this research together, but it unlocked, it kind of made all the difference for us. And it, it allowed us to be very successful and grow in our online, in the online market in a way that so many not-for-profits didn't. And I think it's critical. So the idea was, you know, when we started looking at who was online and who was on campus, a lot of schools just sort of do everything they do for online students and kind of port it into a digital experience. Mm -hmm. But the reality is those are not the same students and the jobs are asking us to do are very different. So for the campus student, <clears throat> it's an academic experience that leads to a good job and career and a better life. Got that. Um, it's almost table stakes for them. Like mm -hmm. they assume, like they don't very much question that of us. You go on the average tour, they don't even know what questions to ask. They look around and go, Columbia. This is a good place. Like I know Columbia, like academics are going to be good. But what are 95% of the questions about? It's the second job they want to have done, which is they want to come of age. And I'm going to use that phrase very broadly. It's I want to live in an intentional community that feels like I fit in. That's what they're sizing up where they're on the tour. Do I feel like I fit in here? They're sizing up the tour guide. Do I like this person? Do I want to be like that person? Um, do you have the clubs that I'm interested in? Who will I live with? How long before I get a single? I'm a vegan. Can you, you know, can you serve my food needs? Um, am I good enough a player to make your varsity a field hockey team? Or will it be JV for me? Or is there a club team? Like, it's all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's happening in the pandemic, as students really balk at tuition, like, you can move me online with the same faculty and the same curriculum. They're saying, that's actually not what I pay for. I want to pay something for that but I pay for this other thing that you know, are no longer giving me. It's really interesting what we've learned. And I think it's been a shock to a lot of academics. Oh, totally. They thought academics is what you pay for. This is just window dressing. Like this oh. is the other stuff we have to do. It's like, no, students actually think that's the job they want. Uh -huh. They, well, they, I've said this for a yeah. long time, and I'm not too popular at my place for saying this, but, um, you know, if, if I ask a randomly selected room full of executives, you know, why would you pay a quarter million dollars to get a Columbia MBA? And they'll start off with, well, it's the network, and it's the, you know, the reputation of the institution, and we were very selective. So the admissions officer does this fantastic job of pre-screening. Yeah. So I, I sometimes joke, you know, with our dean, I said, you know, after the admissions office has done its thing, as long as we don't do any damage for two years, you know, they're still going to be the exceptional, selective, wonderful uh, people they were when they got here. <laughs> you know? I, I cannot reveal to you uh, your competing but very elite business school who did this study among their students, but they said basically the cost of being here for your MBA is about 250000 between tuition and opportunity costs. Yep. Um, and, and for that, you are going to get amazing peers, amazing faculty, this great setting, a great value-added network, and all these people we're going to put in front of you, stars. Mm -hmm. If you could have the degree, the diploma, and the name, and the value-added network for $250,000 still, 
which one would you choose? They were shocked. The majority said the second. <laughs> they wanted, they wanted, they wanted the credential. They wanted uh -huh. the value-added network. Right. And look, at some of them wanted the experience. There was, there wasn't like a hundred percent, but it was. They never released it. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm absolutely sure. And well, like I asked that same group of executives, right? You get to item about 27 before they say, oh, yeah, and you might learn something, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I'm not being a little bit cynical, but... Um, well, let me but get I, back to your question, because I think I want to just do uh, this distinction between <laughs> undergraduates, you know, 17-year-old coming out of high school who really is living for this coming-of-age experience, and it's splendid. Like, what we do on American campuses is untouched, right? And they get their academic two jobs. When I look at my adults, they want convenience. I have a super busy life. Like, right, I, I got work, I have kids, I have to squeeze this in. Like, give it to me in a way that fits in my life, which is why online learning took off. Give it to me at a cost I can afford. I'm stuck. Like, if I could afford an expensive degree, I, 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 wouldn't, be in, I wouldn't be in, right? Give me a credential that will actually unlock a real opportunity and give it to me uh, as fast as you can because I'm only doing this hard thing because I feel urgency. Mm -hmm. So, so when you look at those two things, you build very different offerings, right? So it's, you can say to an undergraduate, hey, you have a financial aid question to be worked out, go to this office at this time, they'll send you to this office, get this piece of paperwork, really kludgy administrative paper, right? And you go, you say that to an adult who's got like, I have an hour at the end of the day, it's already 4.30, your office closes at five, who am I calling, right? Like, we have to build systems that really work for them. And that's just one simple example. Uh-huh, it's really, I believe you said once that they've had about all the coming of age they can handle. Yeah, like if you think about it, you know, we all love those late night dorm conversations about the meaning of life, et cetera, et cetera. And it is all about coming of age, right? I've got two kids, I did a tour in Afghanistan, I'm working in a kind of dead-end frontline job in a warehouse. I really feel like I have the smarts to be in a supervisor's position. Maybe they even said to me, if you get your degree, we can promote you. Um, and like, I don't need coming of age. I got that one. I know what I'm about, right? I got that ground covered. Um, and it's not to say that their intellects don't light up, that they don't love their literature courses, their gen ed courses. Like all that is true, of course. They're smart people. But the thing that drives them, the job that needs to get done primarily is this, give me, unlock an opportunity for me as fast as you can because I have to take better care of my family. Mm -hmm. So when you first got to um, Southern New Hampshire in 2003, uh, can you just set the scene for us? Like, what was it like then and how's that changed? Yeah, so it was about, it was not known. Um, so we did, one of the very first things I did was I commissioned some external marketing research, uh, top of mind research. So you're very familiar with this, but they didn't say, do you know Southern New Hampshire University? They said things like, name the universities in New Hampshire, right? So we wanted to see where we would come up. And it was pretty scary. Now, in slight defense, we used to be New Hampshire College and we had changed our name two years before. So in the follow-ups, when they said New Hampshire College, oh yeah, oh, I didn't realize they changed their name. So there was some of that lag. Mm -hmm. In Boston, which is only an hour away, we had 8% name recognition. Abysmal, right? Um, so um, I said, God, we have, we have 2,500 students. We have a little online operation with about 18 people working in it, but they were doing good work. Um, we had we had a lot of folks who wanted the place to be better. When I, in the interview process, I kept, you know, people kept saying, we want to get to the next level. No, they would all define that differently. But I will say to new presidents, when you take on an institution, you're that institution's biggest cheerleader externally, but you have to be the hardest nosed poker player internally. What I mean by that is you've been dealt a hand and good poker players play the probabilities and they play the best cards. 
And I thought at that point, my best card was going to be online because I could see what was happening. We could see what was happening with technology. You could see this enormous growth of the for-profits who, you know, the nonprofits looked at online learning and they kind of looked down their nose at it and they oh, walked. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we don't do it. We don't. We don't do it. And nature pours a vacuum. The for-profits <laughs> swept in. And overnight, 12% of all American college students were enrolled in a for-profit taking online courses. Wow. I thought, we know how to do this. We don't, we're not big, but I think we could compete against them. And that was what we set out to do. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to 2012, Babson University does a list of the 50 largest nonprofit providers of online degrees. We were number 50, bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, three years later, we were number four. It was a meteoric rocket ride. We broke everything. We didn't know how to scale, so we broke payroll, we broke financial aid, we broke tech. Um, so I have scar tissue, we learn. Um, you know, the, if you ask my people, they still recall the summer of financial aid hell when we broke that system. We had people volunteering, coming in in the evenings and weekends and trying to, you know, phone time, phone queues were back 25 minutes. We were getting slammed on social media, but we learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and now today we are arguably the largest university in the country. I say arguably because depending on how you count, it's also WGU. Um, and what we've also seen is the not-for-profits, we've taken that market back. The for-profits are plummeted. It's been a nosedive. Phoenix, I think, was over 500,000 students, or under 100,000 now, I believe. Is that right? So, yeah. Sure. Well, they've got a huge a national brand now, right? We have more, we have thousands of students in California, Texas, Florida. It's really a national footprint. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So how did you, you talk about poker playing, how did you overcome the, the inertia? I mean... I, you know, as someone who has spent many, many years at a university, uh, the yeah. powers of inertia are substantial. Yeah, they really are. So the biggest back pulls on innovation are uh, status and money. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard for a Columbia to do genuine innovation because you get handcuffed by this amazing institution that's been built, great loyalty to what's been built, and a lot of money. And it's actually, you know, the old expression, creativity craves constraint. So yes. if you take a look at who the big growth innovation universities have been, they tend to not be the status moneyed institution. So Western governors created out of whole cloth. Uh, University of Maryland Global Campus created on the edge of the system, not part of any institution. They had to create it by itself, essentially out of whole cloth, even if it was within a system. We came out of nowhere. Arizona State University used to I was going to mention them used to be the poor cousin, the laughingstock of the Arizona pub, right? It was the party school. And Michael Crow has done an amazing job, right? Building a class R1 institution. So if you look at like who has sort of been successful, then take a look at the places that have been unsuccessful. They're the ones like, remember University of Illinois Global World, World Campus? It was launched with great fanfare. And they said the University of Illinois brand will conquer this market. A year later, they closed it. Wow. Um, right? And you think about the California State online. Tempted it for some time, closed. Um, and these Penn, were Penn all State? great brands. Penn, Penn State? Uh, Penn State, you know, it's interesting. Penn State had been and is arguably still, you know, it's a high quality offering, but it was the dominant leader. No one talks about Penn State now in the ranks of the big online providers. No, it kind no, of interesting. UMass Online plateaued, right? So there are schools that could push as far as they could push. But what they came up against was all of that institutional inertia that's baked into systems, baked into processes, baked into governance, baked into authority, the slow moving pace, the lack of data, like all these things that characterize higher ed. Mm -hmm. Um, So that overcoming it for us was really taking a page out of Clay's playbook, Uh which is 
um, what you know, what he said is, look, if you're going to, and I think people use Clay's work sometimes in a very thin way, right? So when he talked about sustaining innovation, it's really about doing what you do, not changing the rules of the game, but doing it better, either improving the quality or doing it more efficiently. But when you talk about disruptive innovation, you're saying rewrite the rules of the game. That's what disruptive innovation is. And to do that, we had to move our online operation to a different location, like literally out of sight, out of mind, sort of a skunk works notion. We had to give them permission to break the rules. Like, nope, these processes don't work, reinvent, have new processes. Mm -hmm. We had to negotiate with our faculty governance to give them permission to run faster. And you might say, well, that's a big one. How'd you do that? It was in the midst of the recession. And in 2009, the crisis created the conditions where they were willing to buy in. Okay. Um, so all of those things, and then we had to, and, and I'll stop, but the, the least sexy part of the story is really critical because the least sexy part of the story is the four years it took to get under the hood and change all of our operating rules, our, our tech stack, the ways we did things. And it's kind of the wiring and it's not sexy, but if you don't get that right, those internal systems and processes, if you don't get into the infrastructure, you can have the best idea in the world. You can spend a lot of money on marketing and both will be wasted because they'll come crashing up against all of the inefficiencies internally. Well, and I love the way you describe um, when you really understand the adult learning market and what their jobs are to be done. And um, I remember hearing you speak about you know, uh, an 18 year old can wander around from office to office to get their transcript, for example, um, whereas an adult learner, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not gonna happen. And so you really make that easy for them. Yeah, that's right. A good example of this is if someone, as I said, 80% of our students have credits from other schools. If you um, tell a traditional age student, we need to get a certified transcript because you wanna transfer in, they're gonna walk across campus and go to the registrar's office and get a transcript and they'll pay the $10. If you say to a busy adult, you know, you have three schools, you got to contact the registrar, you got seven, ten dollars and a certified check, et cetera, et cetera, or a credit card. And you have to have sent like, what's a registrar and how do I find them? And I get out of work at five, but they're already closed. And so what we did is we said, no, if you check this box, you're giving us permission to chase down your transcript for you and we'll pay the ten dollars. Like eliminate the hurdle, right? Like, oh, thanks. That's great. And now all of a sudden we're able to get back to them very quickly and say, we did a transfer credit evaluation and this is how many credits you can we can give you and this is how far you would be away from graduation remember one of their criteria is completion time mm -hmm. so the more transfer credit friendly you are the better it is for them they're already in that conversation with you if you haven't changed that process and you're trying to recruit you know recruit them for admission and it takes you two weeks to get back to them by that time we've already got them matriculated Right, yeah, so, yeah. so it's, not this, it's not the idealistic part of higher ed, it's not an educator's dream, mm -hmm. but it's the machinery that if you're going to do this enterprise well, you have to get right. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the convenience factor. Totally. Like move hurdles. We just went to an online portal for our online students and everything, 65 to 70% of them now apply on a phone, right? It's bang, 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 bang. Wow. Um, so the notion of you know paperwork and remember think about think about what a FAFSA looks like. It's why one of the FAFSA remains one of the bottlenecks in financial aid. That's terrible. So you don't require it? No, we do because there's no way to get federal financial aid without a completed right. FAFSA. But we try to do all the financial literacy, counseling, and tons of help to get students through that in a kind of laborious process. It is. It but, is very laborious. Yeah. 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 And it's part of why 
higher ed has been slow to be disrupted is that we are in a regulated industry. So mm -hmm. if you think about Clay's work, things like music and journalism got just blown up really overnight. Those industries transformed overnight. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I wanna say in 2005, 2006, was the single best year in the history of journalism for print revenues. And a year later, 350 papers went out of business. Like it went off a cliff, right? And it was all about not understanding that their business model was built on advertising. So you take eBay, you take all this uh, uh, Craigslist, they just blew up at journalism, not the act of journalism, the business model of journalism. Right. Same right. with music, you know, Napster comes along, MP3s, file sharing, overnight, boom, the industry gets blown up. Mm -hmm. So the difference for higher ed and healthcare is that we're both regulated industries and it's much harder to disrupt our worlds. Banking as well. Banking as well. All my, all my friends. Third party payers, right? They're not just regulated, but at least in healthcare and higher ed, you've got a third party payer, which is the federal Absolutely. government. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I tell a lot of my friends in financial services who whine about being regulated. Oh, you know, they regulated this. I like, I'm like, you should get out of bed every day and kiss the ground that you are regulated. <laughs> you know, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I mean, why else do we have such incredible longevity and endurance in, in yeah. that sector? It's, it's crazy. So let's go back to um, music, because I think this is an interesting question that I've been talking about around higher ed for a long time, which is once you could buy the song you wanted and you didn't have to buy 18 other songs yep. to go with it, um, the whole business model blows up. And yep. I've often wondered with higher ed, if you, could, if you could just take the courses that you wanted, if you could get the, the, the micro-credential, if you will, that you wanted, why would you pay for the degree? I mean, sort of as a backdrop in my head, I'm, I'm going back to the faculty meetings I would sit in where they'd have these intense discussions about what courses have to be in the core. Yeah. You know, and the reason courses have to be in the core from a faculty member's point of view is if you if you can get your course in the core, that means you then have to staff it, which means then you can hire more people, which then means yeah. your department gets more power. And it's just this like this, they're not, the discussions are never about, oh, we really think as, as advisors and as experts that the students would not be considered to have a complete master's degree if they did not have this particular yeah. bit of knowledge. That's not the nature of the conversation. That's right. Yeah, and I think... You know, part of what you're putting your finger on is that, first of all, we have an industrial age model of higher education. It's really never been built around students. It's been built around the institution and the faculty and the disciplines. So if you and I applied to the same, I was an English major, we both were undergraduate, we're both English majors, could both go to the same school. We're going to be in a fairly standard pathway. We're going to be a gen ed that's been preordained for us, has nothing to do with our passions, our interests, our knowledge. And then we're gonna be put on a series of sort of, you know, for our major, what are the requirements? And then we'll have some electives in there, but by and large, you and I are gonna have exactly the same experience because it's not built for us, it's not individualized. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the, our sense of the future of higher education is that that industrial model can't work any longer. It doesn't work anymore. So if you think about, it was built for a time when you could go out of high school, go to work, go to school for four years, two years or four years, and then go to work. And that education would suffice. Now, if you think about the nature of work, jobs are changing fundamentally every three to five years. So even if you don't change your job, Rita, your job will change out from under okay. Okay. Right? Look at what you're doing. Look what we're doing today. This was not, you did not do this 10 years ago, right? <laughs> Maybe not even five years ago. Right. So, so part of your, your work is always changing. So in the future, we envision a higher ed ecosystem in which people will dip in and out of. Mm -hmm and that they will not be going in for degrees, they'll be going in for just the amount of learning they need in just that moment in just the right way. And that could be two hours. Like 
hey, I'm a programmer. I've been asked to work on this project. I never really mastered this subroutine in this programming language. I need two hours of immersion because I have a meeting tomorrow and I got to be on top of my game. Could be two days. Could be, no, I just need to get really good at this one thing that I don't, you know, it could be two weeks, two months, or two years, right? So, so I think we will see in the future much more granularity of credentials and people will go in and out of that system. So I was just on a call with various um, Hill staffers in DC who are policymakers. I said, we need to have short-term Pell Grants, like Pell Grants pay for degrees, but poor people quite often will need, um, you know, access to a coding boot camp, which could change their life. Mm -hmm. Give me six months and $15,000 and I can go from my low end job to making $65,000 a year. Game changer for mm -hmm. my family, right? Mm -hmm. Pell Grants don't serve that very well. They're not built for that. But in mm -hmm. fact, that's how a lot of learning will take place in the future. Mm -hmm. And to your earlier point, I think we will become increasingly, our vision at least, is that universities become curators of learning. Mm -hmm. So we say to Rita, Rita, what do you, what do you need to, what are you trying to do? Why are you here? And you might say to us, I'm on four years, I'm living on campus, I want to have the whole experience, give me my major. But you might say to us, I'm really stuck, and I hate this industry, right? We just did a survey of 900 recently unemployed people. 65% um, of them plan on changing industries. Wow. Like they're not going back. And think they were about mostly, they were mostly they're coming out of retail and they're coming out of uh, travel, tourism, et cetera. Like mm -hmm. I'm not coming back, like my world is done. Mm -hmm. So they're saying to us, this is what they said was really interesting. Um, give us the number one thing is skills. Like give me the skills that gives me a job. And they want, they want the reassurance. Like you have to show me how those skills will either get me an interview, an internship or a job. Like what's the evidence that these skills actually matter to the workforce? Really smart. Mm -hmm. like, and then the second thing they said is we want it fast. 17 days is what they said, but maybe impossible. And we want it for $250. Like when we looked at person, right? So what they're describing is a micro-credential. Uh -huh. Now, is that going to be adequate enough for the big job change they want? Maybe not, but a series of them, stackable, interlocking uh -huh. like Legos, that allows you to go to an employer and say, look, at, I can show you my skills and this is what they look like. That uh -huh. could be very powerful. Uh -huh. That's not what today's higher ed is built to do. No, no. And employers, built to do. I mean, what's interesting to me on the flip side is employers are begging for that, right? Oh, and sure. we, we've seen the, the, and I've written about this, the, um, the inflation, the degree inflation. Yeah. You know, where basically that's another system that's broken, right? It's, it's designed for the convenience of the recruiting department. Mm -hmm. um, so I take a BA and that's a surrogate for, you know, I showed up for four years and I turned yeah. in my homework and, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I was able to function as a normal human being. And that then becomes the gate to many, many jobs that don't, don't, don't require a BA, right? They require so, other kinds of skills. Yeah, it's so interesting because if you think about it, at the last recession, we heard that argument all the time, like, wait a minute, we're seeing BAs required for jobs that never needed them before because it was a very lazy signal to exactly. the HR department. Go back just a year, and the question was, are BAs really what we need? Let's talk about skills-based hiring because they couldn't find people. Mm -hmm. So now there was the opposite issue, which is, I, I'm just looking for the right, somebody who can show me they can do the job, I'll hire them. I don't care about the BA because it was desperation for the war for talent. It's gonna be really interesting to see what happens as we come out of the pandemic because this recession is gonna look like, make the last one look like a day at the beach, right? We had 8 million unemployed at the height of the last recession. We have 42 million people unemployed, right? Somewhere of that order of magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, so, so will employers slide back? Because they, they had moved towards skills-based. The degree isn't the signal any longer. They now they're going to be able, they're going to have so many people they can hire. Will they actually slide back? I don't know. It's an interesting question. It is a really interesting question. And you talk about um, one of the things I thought was, was made me think was um, 
the only areas in which we have rigorous skills-based assessment in higher ed are areas where you could actually kill someone. So, yeah, where, know, our lives matter. Sorry? Where, where our lives matter. Like we want, we want to know our nurses, doctors, and pilots really, really, really good at performing their job. But the skills, I don't care what you know, I want to know <laughs> you can do the thing. Exactly. So I really do think that there is potentially on the part of employers, um, because even in even with the market awash in unemployed people, you still hear the whining about I can't get the people with, yeah. the, with the the skills that I need um, yeah. effectively. effectively. Um, and at the same time, we see so many people that are just blocked from, you know, achieving their potential in a, in a meaningful way. So, uh, so I, I really do wonder if that's going to be something we give a lot more thought to. Um, well, and I think we, about it, certainly. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think what's really exciting is that when we are willing to talk about competency-based education or skills-based education, we're now at least talking the same language as employers. Like in a traditional model, when an employer looks at a course transcript, what can I actually know about? Like, if, you, if I see that you took managerial accounting, I probably can infer some things about that, but I don't actually know in any real concrete way what you're good at, what your skills are, et cetera. But if I can look at a skills-based transcript and I can be reassured that the assessments were rigorous, then I was like, oh, wow, okay, you, they, they've certified, the university has certified to me as an employer that you have these skills, those are the skills I need, that's how I talk about the world. Mm-hmm. That's now all of a sudden we're, we're at least speaking a common language and that, that could help immensely. And I wonder if it's an incentive problem, you know, that, that I mean, we don't, we Columbia Business School doesn't really suffer any meaningful consequence if somebody hires one of our students and they're disappointed, right? I mean, that doesn't come back to us, you know? Yeah, yeah but in reality, for the select, the highly selective institutions, the signal there is the acceptance. Mm-hmm. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, right? Yeah. I mean, if I get into Columbia Business School, if I get into Columbia undergraduate, I'm sending an immediate signal to the labor market that I'm pretty smart, mm-hmm. I'm pretty accomplished. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty powerful signal. Um, but, you know, if you take a look at, I sit on, I chair the American Council of Education Board, and we have Gallup do various surveys for us. And it was a really fascinating one they did. And they did a focus group. They videotaped the focus groups and they showed us. And I think everyone's back in their seats a little bit because really the great mass of Americans, particularly if you're talking about working adults, they can't name more than a handful of elite schools. And they don't distinguish after that. It's all just kind of brand. And they don't even distinguish between for-profit and not-for-profit the way we think we do. So look, at if you're a high school kid, you're probably pretty brand conscious because you've been living in a world of where you're going to go, what school are you applying to, who will, who will take me, who won't take me. But, but the, if you ask people to name the elite brands, they're probably fewer than 50, right? So it's the Ivy League, it's the NESCAC schools like Bates, Bowdoin, Colby, um, and it's flagship state universities. Mm-hmm. And after that, they don't sort of make a lot of distinction, but there are 4,000 plus institutions in this country. Yeah. So it's only, the, the real impact is on everybody else. And then that's who employers are dealing with, right? Mm-hmm. Most employers, the great bulk of employers um, are seeing a workforce flow out of higher education from non-elite schools, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You take all the elite schools put together and it's a small, 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 small tiny. percentage of all college graduates. Yeah, it's tiny. 50% of all college students are in community colleges. Oh, I didn't know right? that. Like a reminder ourselves of this. So our, we have a 
when we talk about higher education, I think we get very sloppy and not being clear about which higher education we're talking about because there are multiple higher eds. Mm -hmm. There's elite higher education. It's always been there. It's always been elite. And then there's everybody else. Mm -hmm. And everybody else is community colleges, publics, non-selective privates, slightly selective privates, et cetera. And what the pandemic has shown is that really only the elites and the flagships are probably insulated from the severest impacts of the pandemic and the recession. Everyone else is up for grabs. Yeah. And so you've announced that you're going online only in the fall. Yes, and I am not the most popular guy among SNHU undergraduates on campus right now. <laughs> oh, dear. Or their parents. What, what are they telling you? <laughs> well, the students are desperate to come back to campus, and their parents appear to be desperate to get rid of them from the house. So <laughs> I get it. I get it. We all have quarantine fatigue, but we just couldn't find a way to get there safely. Mm -hmm. um, there are sort of two things that have to happen. So one is access to testing, and not any testing, but testing that is fast so if you're testing people coming onto campus you can ask them to wait 10 minutes 20 minutes you may even be able to ask them for an hour wait an hour but you can't ask them you know, it can't be two days no. um it's got to be uh um accurate so as you know the exponential nature of infection rates means that 95 percent accuracy is not good enough like five percent will infect your campus in a heartbeat and it's got to be cheap if it's 200 bucks a test i can't test all my staff coming onto campus this morning right i can't test the faculty the vendors etc so we don't have access to that right now. And then the second piece, I think, and we won't for a while, and the second piece is even if you had that, the logistical challenges of enforcing social distancing, keeping your at-risk population safe. Um, I was talking to a faculty member at one of the elite law schools who said, you know, the faculty have met informally. We don't care what they decide. We're not coming back. And you're hearing that now. You're hearing the faculty saying, wait a minute, that's great for an 18-year-old. They're statistically at very low risk. I'm not. Right. Right. The dining hall worker is not. The housekeeper is not. Like, there's just, it's impossible. And then dorms are, of course, the huge issue. And there's a very good piece on in, in, um, Inside Higher Education today, taking a look at the challenge of dorms. And they're just built for intimacy, which is exactly the wrong thing for a pandemic. It's right? the right thing for the coming of age thing. And we build these communities. I mean, I always say that, you know, after cruise ships and nursing homes, campuses are probably the single worst place to be if you are worried about a pandemic. Absolutely. But you also understand why an 18-year-old is desperate to get there. Of oh, of course. Right? Um, so you think, you think this is, um, I mean, you described this as a black swan event for a lot of um, campuses. Um, and they're already in rickety shape, a lot of them. Uh, you know. Yeah, I think what's happening with the pandemic is that it's not so much revealed or created new, new problems. I mean, obviously, the logistics of this next year are the new problems. But it's really amplified or accelerated things we already knew. We knew higher education was very fragile in terms of its financial or fiscal state. We knew that we were we had great inequities, and certainly the pandemic has shown a very harsh light on those inequities. Um, we knew that we were too expensive, and now as families are losing jobs and you know losing family businesses, that's going to become very harshly so apparent. So you take all of those things we knew, um, and they all just sort of get supercharged, um, and that's why I think I think yeah I think it really is a black swan moment and. The bad, the bad news is it's terrible, right? It's terribly painful. It's, you know, we have dedicated faculty and staff whose lives will be disrupted, students whose lives will be disrupted. If there's any good news in this is that historically, when America has had a catastrophe of this magnitude, it has reinvented higher education for the better. Mm -hmm. So out of the ashes of the Civil War came the Morrell Act and the creation of our flagship research universities, our land grants. And 
arguably the public system of higher ed. Mm -hmm. uh, out of the Depression World War II came the GI Bill. And what we saw really was arguably the democratization of higher education and a wave of new institutions and a variety of institutions. Like higher ed just got better. Mm -hmm. So out of this very painful experience, the question will be, can we reinvent a higher education that's better suited to the world in which we find ourselves than the industrial age model, which I loved. Like you and I had an amazing experience, right? And it worked well for us, but it was a different time. Mm -hmm. And even, even when I say that, my public university we had cinder block dorms. We had something that was a cut above prison food, but not much better, right? <laughs> and we thought it was pretty great. We had a, we had a pay phone in the hallway, you know, once a week call, hey, LeBlanc, you know, your mom's on the phone. Um, <laughs> and we had all of those things. Look at, there were certainly elite institutions, but more of American higher ed looked like that. And it was wonderful. You couldn't, you, you can't recruit a student today in yeah. a campus that looks like that. Yeah. So we're all complicit in the problem we created, right? As Clay has said, Clay, uh, our friend said, there's a lot of status chasing in higher education. Um, we built palatial dorms. And, and, you know, I've had families say to me, you know, um, how soon before Johnny can have a single? And he's a vegan, so does he, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And also, by the way, he has this allergy. Like, these are legit. Like, okay, yep, we have to think about those things. And, you know, do you have these things, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yep, yep, we have that. Um, and, and why is it so expensive? I was like, can we just talk about that list? <laughs> so we've well, seen- Part of what I, I see, you know, in my years of observing higher ed is an awful lot of this um, choices about investment are driven by the tyranny of the lists, you know, the rankings. Oh my God. And uh, I mean, I see uh, even in business schools, um, I mean, the, the rankings, the rankings have been the dog, the tail that wags the dog, you know, in many, many cases. Um, and before Business Week started this, at least in business schools, uh, before Business Week started this, the deans ranked each other's institutions. I mean, it was really the, the sort of, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the inmates uh, ranking the asylum. And once we had this sort of objective thing where you were talking to recruiters and you were talking to alumni, um, the game changed completely. And, yeah. and it became, it, it had a huge impact on the institution. Yeah, I think the general public doesn't recognize to what extent higher ed is deeply competitive. Oh, yeah. Right, deeply competitive. Uh, Columbia is conscious of how it's doing, you know, with its competitive set. And public, you know, flagships are very conscious of where they, you know, they're, they're set. And it's just true for every sector of the industry. Um, and that competition skews the decisions we make. And they're not often about the quality of a student's education, right? They're about how do we feel about ourselves? How, do, how does the board feel? What do donors say? How much will mm -hmm. alumni give? You know, um, a higher ranking allows us to recruit more international students who are super brand and rank conscious. Yes. Um, it was very unpopular years ago when um, our business school wanted to pursue a CSB accreditation and we have I may be getting this wrong, but we have the silver standard as opposed to the gold standard. And what I said to them is, look, at, I understand that we would have to have more, more research underway. I understand that your course loads would diminish. Um, I understand that um, you know, we would be in a different company, right? different competitive set, et cetera, et cetera. But just tell me if you could, how this would be better for our students. And, well, and how will the additional 2.5 million a year required actually improve what they experience. 
And the answers are predictably amorphous. Well, if I'm doing more research, I can bring that into the classroom. Oh. I'm thinking, I don't hear students asking for more research-driven pedagogy, right? Like that's really, that's pretty tenuous. <laughs> and it's important that faculty remain up to date in their field. I'm not talking about, I'm not saying scholarship is important, but I'm a critic of specialized accreditations because I think they're really about self-protectionism. Mm. And they're about the sort of you know, welfare and, and good feelings of the faculty within those disciplines, but really not about students very much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so, so um, you talk about reinvention, right? And yep. we're at a at a big moment right now for social justice and and people mm -hmm. recognizing all the all the barriers that have been put in front of people, you know, through no fault of their own, yep. uh, but real headwinds, you know, that people are facing and. What in my more optimistic moments, and, and I try to make a big distinction between preferences and predictions. You know, I know what I'd prefer, but I don't know that that's necessarily what's going to happen. But what what I think would be absolutely wonderful is if this crisis really prompts us to do some of the things you're suggesting. So, you know, bite-sized credentials yeah. around specific skills, um, and you know, being being able to translate some of that glorious research into things that make a difference to to people's um, lives and i think this could be an incentive for some of that anyway i, I you know out of, out of sheer self-preservation um yeah. you know, I, see, I see people being more open to that yeah for sure and if you you started with talking about sort of overseeing our equity and social justice and you know we announced a five million dollar social justice fund um uh -huh that we're using and basically making it available to kind of task force around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But we're saying is like, look at, we know that there's immediate need. So we have students, like we looked up one day and realized a lot of our students of color are actually online and doing their work between midnight and 4 a.m. Like, oh, wow. well, that's weird, what's going on? Well, when we look, when we probably realize that you know their parents, if they're working remotely, there might be one computer in the family and they need it for work. And then if they have siblings, they're using it during the day and during the evening, younger siblings. So when is that computer available for them to do college work? And when is the crowded apartment quiet enough to do college work? It's at two in the morning. Wow. That's when you know, some of our staff are on with their students. Um, so, so we know there's like emergency money, like let's get some Chromebooks, like you can do this more affordable, let's get the aid. And then of course we have housing and uh, housing insecurity, food insecurity. So, you know, how do we how do we work with those students? Like it's really challenging. But on another level, what I'm saying as well is let's look really hard at the ways in which inequity might be baked into our systems and our processes in ways that we don't even see, right? Like that's a function of privilege and kind of how we've always done it. And this is when we talk about structural inequity or structural racism, this is where this matters. And I had a really great example of this a year or two ago when we use, and this is not uncommon, um, the housing lottery, you could like, a, we get an apartment, I would get three of my friends, fellow students, but we would pull their GPAs to take a look, right? And then I had a mother write to me and say, you know, my son's an engineering student and his GPA is not as high as many of his friends, but in order for him to be there, he has to work almost 38 hours a week. And, and he's, you know, he's killing himself. He's a really serious student, but he just doesn't get enough sleep. And I wrote him, I was like, and, and now he's getting penalized in terms of the quality of his housing. I thought, we thought we were incenting sort of academic performance. We were, but we weren't taking into account, what does it mean for a poor student as to work much more than his more privileged peers? Mm. And it meant that we were further punishing him, mm. further limiting. So we changed our policy. Mm. But I wonder how much of that is baked into what we do without our even thinking about it. So, we're actually gonna stand up a team around equity design. Hmm. 
So they would actually look at all of our systems, our process. If you're standing up a new program, they're the ones who would call in to say, what are we missing? Like, are we, are we sort of, you know, are we sort of um, putting, putting people sort of unintentionally um, sort of marginalizing people because we designed something we didn't think hard enough about? So I know you often think about, you know, when this topic comes up, it's about, you know, what's the topic coverage in a course? It's like, it's way more systemic than that even. Let me give you an example. A lot of our poor students would do better under federal financial aid calculations if they could be independent. As an independent student, you get access, right? But to do that, you have to get tax records and verification from both parents. What if you can't find your father? <sighs> so if you can't find your father, there's a waiting period and it takes a year, but now you've lost a year. <sighs> and if you have very little social capital, lots of bad things can happen in that year. Sure. So, and whereas if you were able to come to our campus, you've got that holistic support system. You have safe housing, you have food, right? You're being well taken care of. Um, that's a system question. It wasn't designed to disadvantage a poor student, but that's exactly what it does. So I think it's such a complicated and interesting time and I'm really optimistic. I actually, I, I think we're, I think we had to be this broken to get it right. Mm. Well, that's that's the hope, you know, that we're not wasting. That's the, we're not wasting the crisis. So uh, we have a question about what are the questions you think boards should be asking um, of of leaders in higher ed. Yeah, it's a uh, it's one we're hearing a lot now. Um, so they have the tyranny of the urgent right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally cash flow. Mm -hmm. If we can't bring students, you know, what are we going to do? So I think there's that piece. Um, I think boards need to. So it's multi-layered. So those are the very practical questions. But if I could go up to 35, if I can chunk up to 30,000 feet, I would want to look at this question of, and we've been thinking a lot about this, mm -hmm. how are we built organizationally to be able to sort of navigate or not navigate? And I would argue that higher education is among the most hierarchical and siloed organizations in the world, right? And what we know about <laughs> the world in which we find ourselves is that Rigid equals brittle. I'm going to borrow from my friends at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto. Rigid equals brittle. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have flexibility, if you can't work across your silos, if you can't quickly bring cross-functional teams together, if you're relying on your hierarchy, on your silos to navigate, you are in trouble. Mm -hmm. And we've been working. It's not easy because higher just does this naturally. Healthcare does this naturally as well. There are other expert systems that do this. But if you take a look at we've been talking a lot about how we create a much more shape-shifting organization that can respond to these things, right? Um, so I think from, a, from really sort of standing back, one of the things I would say is, how are you thinking about that? So for example, a small college president said to me, I don't have the expertise on my leadership team to kind of figure out how to guide us to online. I was like, well, you think that your leadership team are guiding the work. I said, but here's what I guarantee you. You've got faculty who have been doing this stuff because they love it and they think it's interesting and they know a ton. You've got someone on your IT staff who's like, no, they're geeks. They're like figuring this out. Like you've got to find where the talent is and it isn't on the org chart. Like going to the top of the org chart is not where you're going to find your solution. In fact, it's that old cliche, right? Like those closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Like you have, are you empowering people? Are you thinking, no, you don't make that cultural shift overnight. But mm -hmm. boards are charged with the long view. Mm -hmm. Are we building an institution that has that capacity because we live in what the military calls a VUCA world, mm -hmm. volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm -hmm. 
And in a VUCA world, you've got to be fleet of foot. You have to be agile and responsive. Mm -hmm. And that's not the hallmark of higher ed. So I know the person asking the question wanted a more concrete answer, but that's actually in the long term, I think what will distinguish thriving higher ed and flailing higher ed and diminished higher ed. So, so that's one. I think on a more practical level, um, you really got to be starting to think about how you start to rethink your models and where it's broken because they know they've been broken. They've been broken think, forever. <laughs> they've been broken forever. But the answer has been, let's do more of the same and raise more money. Um, and, and we have to kind of rethink our models. And it's not, it's not like, I think it's easy to fall into. We got it right and we're just not getting enough support. It's not clear to me we have it right anymore. Like if you think about the United States where 50% of students don't finish in four years, $1.6 trillion of debt, 40 million Americans with credits and no degree um, and debt as well. It's like, that's a pretty broken system. You know, if your pilots had 50% success rates, we'd all be in trouble. We wouldn't fly, <laughs> right? Um, so higher ed is not life and death, but God, it's, it's high stakes for people. And the poorest among us have the least um, ability to take a chance. Yes. Like they, get, they often get one shot. Right. Right. And, and we owe them better than what we've given them. I was speaking to someone uh, who, who is very familiar with the student body at Princeton. Um, and he said, you know, I have seen Princeton students make series of just horrific, badly thought out, you know, really terrible decisions like in their lives. And they still get to graduation and they're still okay because yeah. they've got all these buffers, right? They've got all these resources at their disposal. Uh, whereas, as you said, uh, a poor kid, you know, one shot and you're out, right? Um, yeah. In many cases. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the questions that came up from my buddy Clayton Shedd, who's at Baruch, um, is, is so when we think about these, these institutions that were set up to try to serve some of these communities, right, the, the publicly funded large uh, institutions, how do you see them morphing? Because on top of everything else, they've got, you know, this sort of governmental almost infrastructure that they're trying to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. And I, I if I may, if I can find it really quickly, I would love to be able to grab the screen and show you sure. a slide that we use for thinking about. Um, Absolutely. About innovation higher ed. Yeah, here it is. Um, so let me grab the screen. This is how we think about it, Rita. And where to go? Here it is. Rita, can you see that? Just give me a thumbs uh -huh. up. Yep, you it says it's ready. Oh, great. Uh -huh. Yep. So I'm going to just make it a lot bigger for everyone. And Great, so when we think of this sort of in one slide captures our innovation landscape. This is everything we do. So not just innovation, but it's how we layer innovation on the work. So let me just go through very, very quickly. At the very top, if we go down the left column, our operating pair, this is like, this is it. This is our raison d'etre. We are learner customer obsessed. Like we're not a research university. We don't do it. We don't get distracted by it. There's a lot of things we don't do. We need higher ed, some of higher ed to do that. We need Columbia to do research, right? The world doesn't need SNHU to do research. They need us to do this, to educate more people. Here are our goals. We're gonna lead the industry in learner experience. We're gonna customize and curate at scale. So what we were talking about earlier, Rita, and we're gonna drive down costs because that's who we serve. Remember why I said we serve. Then we talk about the operating model. So the core is the great mainstay of our business. So for the person who asked that question, your core would be the way you mostly do your work today. The emerging would be the new things you're trying to do. And then future looking would be really kind of over the horizon, more R&D. And then the modal approach here is in your core, you kind of know your business, you have certainty. 
And what you're trying to do there is improve quality, what Clay would call sustaining innovation. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is in your emerging where you don't have certainty, right? You're figuring it out. Like if you said, if Baruch wanted to do micro-credentials, if they sort of bought my argument and said, he's right, we're gonna do more short-term learning. They don't have the same certainty. So they have to try things. That's why we call it emerging. And here they're learning. The goal is not to have tons of revenue or enroll a ton of students, not yet. It's really to learn. And then over on the right, it's where you're dealing with uncertainty, like what is the future use of AI or blockchain and student credentials? Like we have to ask better questions. And that's where you do R&D. If you think about innovation in the core, it's all about improvement. It's what Clay calls sustaining. When you talk about these other two, it's about disruptive innovation. And then, you know, Below that are all the things that kind of matter. These are the operating characteristics. So to go to your person's question, Abrush, what I would say is know which kind of innovation you're trying to do. A lot of innovation, and higher ed is much more innovative than it's given credit for. A lot of that innovation is in the first. It's in the sustaining, making things better. So if you walk past, you know, when I was at Little Marlboro College in rural Vermont some years ago, we were able, because of technology, to give our astronomy students direct access to the Hubble spacecraft um, uh, images. Wow. That would have been unheard of 10 years before, right? But that was just, we, like, we improved quality, right? We could do things we couldn't do before. And a lot of higher ed has amazing quality. Like the old sage on the stage teaching model. I know that gets cited all the time. When I walk around through hallways, I don't see that so much. I see vibrant, interactive classes that look very different. Mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to do the other two in a big bureau bureaucratic, well-established structure, I think you have to break it away. And you have to serve, Clay would say, if you're doing genuinely disruptive innovation, do it with a market that you don't currently serve mm -hmm. and do it with a market that's under-consuming. Our non-consuming is even better. So if you want to do something, a lot of what happens is like, oh, but if you do this new thing and you serve the same students, you're going to cannibalize my enrollments over here. It's like, don't serve the same students. And by <laughs> the way, if it's generally disruptive, it's not going to be, it's not, you're not going to get it right out of the gate. It, but a, an under-consuming student will live with you. They'll say, okay, I, I get it. Like, it's not perfect, but, but it's better than what I have, which is nothing. So let it work with me. So I think, you know, when you look at if you go down into the opening characteristics, and again, this is for the person from Rouge, if you look at process governance, core business should stay where it is. Like, don't try to change your governance model to make sustaining innovations. That's what they're really good at. But if you slide over to emerging, now you need agile governance. You need scope expanding and narrowing. You need to be, right? So you start to think about this a little bit differently. So let me start, I'll do the stock share, and I can send you the slide if anybody wants. That'd be great. Oh, I'm sure our audience would absolutely um, love that. Yeah, so I think what I've argued, because we are regulated industries, like if Bruce wants to um, innovate, um, it needs to make an argument internally that they need safe spaces. Like you need the faculty governance bodies to say, look, at, we don't want to surrender our control. That's what governance is about. But we will give you administration safe space to try things. Mm -hmm. And they will give you guardrails. And when you get to a certain point, then it has to come back. We at least have to talk about governance at that point. But we'll at least give you the space. And I've said this to accreditors. You can't slap the hand of every institution trying to do something that looks different because your standards don't, aren't well suited. Give them safe spaces. Put guardrails around. I've said this to the federal government. You know, federal finance, and actually the federal government and the Secretary of Education has something called experimental site authority. He, uh -huh. actually, he actually can create safe spaces around Title IV. Huh. 
So, so I think this idea of safe spaces to experiment and get things wrong, and we're brutal in higher ed when one of us gets something wrong, right? And in some ways, because we're an expert culture. So mm -hmm. you know what expert cultures are. Medicine is an expert culture. Status accrues to how good you are, mm -hmm. how smart you are, how expert you are. If you go to a typical faculty debate, there's a lot of poking holes. There's a lot of let me <laughs> gotcha kind of arguments, right? Because we're going to test how smart you are. Like, do you really have this? I'm going to show you sometimes how smart I am by asking those questions. Of course. Um, but the problem in expert cultures is that you get punished excessively when you get it wrong or you say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And having safe spaces for experimentation allows someone to say, we have this idea, but we have more questions than answers. Like, we don't really know. So can we create a space where we get to answer the questions? Remember that second column? What's it about? It's about learning. You don't have certainty. Right. We live in cultures that reward certainty. Absolutely. Or at least pretend certainty. So one of the things I would observe, and certainly this is true in business, and maybe it's true in other places, but if I look at the people who are regarded as the real thought leaders, a lot of times they're the people that are in between. Like they're in between disciplines, they're yeah. in between institutions. They're not, they're not the standard, you know, track people. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about two more things. One is Chegg and the other yeah. is bread. Is what? Bread. Okay. <laughs> Apparently you've been doing a lot of bread baking in the pandemic. Oh, bread. I think it's a red. It's like, I was at, you know, red is Bono's charity. Oh, no, 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 no. I, was like, I actually went to a fundraiser before. I was like, wow, where did that come from? Can I just do a real, but someone named Ash has asked a question about gender diversity. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm really proud of this fact I have to share with you this year. So two years ago, our board made a commitment to get to 50-50 gender diversity on the board, gender balance. So we hit it this year. So we have 50% of our board of women, 50% men. I can find very few boards, higher ed or corporate, for which that's true. I think there may be only four-day boards, period, in the country, for which that's oh. true. And I think it really makes a difference. And two-thirds of my leadership team are women. And, and, and we also work really hard on diversity. So we have more people of color on our board. So when we were dealing with the civil unrest in the country and talking about its implications, et cetera, that conversation was so much better. It was so much different. Mm -hmm. The solutions we came up were more concrete and actionable because we had people of color on the board. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the kinds of um, gender inequities, misogyny and, and bias, we just, I mean, it's not that we don't have it, but uh, two thirds of my women, including the, my COO, including like my, right? They don't put up with that crap, <laughs> right? Like, will we have individual cases of it? Maybe. Will we have systemic? Not on their watch, uh -huh. Uh -huh. right? No, they're gonna make they make all of us better. And I think so. To the person's question, like, that's a place that the board needs to ask questions mm -hmm. of itself, mm -hmm. of management. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So sorry. Now you wanted to ask about Chegg. Chegg, yeah, and the, sort of the future of the textbook monopoly. <laughs> Yeah, so I think broad, more broadly speaking, I think it has implications for higher education. The value add in higher education, I might argue, has always been on the creation, curation, and delivery of content, right? Much of it in the body of the faculty. One of the tools they had for doing so was, was creating textbooks, and then textbooks were lucrative for both publishers, but also authors, et cetera, et cetera. I would argue that in a world where content is increasingly ubiquitous and increasingly free, there's not much value added in it anymore. When I talk to my grown kids about where they go to learn, where's the first place they turn? YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> right? um, and we live in a visual era. So you and I grew up in a text-based world. Um, everyone now is growing up in a visually-based world where text doesn't go away, but it's secondary. 
So it's always you go, you go to video and then text is in service of the video. So in that world where content becomes ubiquitous, I think the value add of learning is actually moving towards services like helping unlock learning, it's curating learning. So it's not the creation of content, but helping you understand where to get the best content for your goal. And for universities, it's credentialing learning. In that world, Chegg's growth is actually not on the textbook side. Chegg's growth is on all of its services, its tutoring services, et cetera. And similarly, if you take a look at the textbook sales in America for a long time, textbook sales are down um, and have been steadily down. And you know, the most agile publishers are moving into other kinds of things. So, so I think you know, textbooks are not the future, but we still need high quality content. It will just come from other places and increasingly it's gonna come from non-traditional sources. Mm -hmm. yep. So where can people go to um, learn more? So I know you have a Forbes column that, that you started. Yeah, so that's fairly new last year, but I have kind of an occasional essay is two or three pieces a month for, uh, for Forbes. And um, we, well, when we could have visitors, we had a day a month when we had lots of institutions come to visit. Not, we'll get past the pandemic. I mean, we will get back to this in maybe a year, maybe 18 months. Hopefully it's faster than a year. But um, we often have people come and say, can I get under the hood? Like, you know, we haven't talked today about data analytics. So we have 75 people on our analytics team and we use data for everything, right? And it amplifies the human interactions. Like we put technology and data in service of the human, not vice versa. So, so there are lots of ways, you know, sort of we can learn from that. And then I, I don't know, I guess we also end up sort of crossing paths on our various forums and conferences and, and speaking as well. Absolutely. And then you asked about bread. Bread. So you've been baking well, like bread? every other American, apparently, if you if I use the availability of yeast or flour as an indicator, um, you know, part of uh, being at home a lot more hours is finding things like bread baking. But it actually goes, you know, I, as I grew up in, a, as I said, a very uh, sort of family of modest means. And my parents worked in uh, my had that eighth grade education. My mom worked in a factory of first generation. But she baked fresh bread every Saturday. So I have no memory of a, a loaf of store-bought bread ever in my upbringing. And everyone in the family knew that she baked bread on Saturday. So all of the nephews and nieces would descend, the grandchildren would descend on her house. So she baked copious amounts of bread. But you know, I have to say that I think I've, I've been trying to learn how to bake bread again as my daughters who are 32 and 30 are doing. And um, I think it's as much for the smell of the bread in the house and the memories of my mother's kitchen as it is for my mediocre at best product. <laughs> um, but there's something incredibly comforting, right? And I think in this uneasy, crazy time in which we find ourselves, comfort food, comfort, comfortable traditions, all of that stuff really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Paul LeBlanc, what an absolute pleasure. The time has just flown by. Um, and to be continued, I hope. <laughs> Yeah, always, always. And thank you for, you know, engaging and asking all the good questions. Good, we, need, we need more of you asking these questions. And <laughs> well, thanks so much. Yeah, and until we, we can meet in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Soon, we hope. Soon, we hope. I hope so. Okay. Right. So long. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Thanks.